Father, we bow down before you, great and mighty God, thanking you for the Bible. You have chosen to reveal yourself to us through a book. We are not simply opening a history book. We are opening your book, Yahweh's book. We know that you are revealing something about your character in today's narrative that we desperately need in order to be complete in thee. This isn't just fluff. This isn't just extra information. This is integral to our growth in Christ-likeness. So God, we are not taking this moment lightly. We came to learn. We came to worship. We came to submit. We came to repent. We came to plead for mercy. And we came to revel in forgiveness. We start a brand new book of the Bible today. We desire to receive from this book all that you intend. Take us deep with you. Sanctify us through this study of 1 Kings. Help us to come out with more confidence in you than we had when we entered. May we come out more joyful than when we entered. More courageous than when we entered. More repentant than when we entered. We fully realize the words we are reading were written and spoken by you well over 3,000 years ago to another group of followers in a very different culture, a very different civilization, in a very different place, yet these words are specifically for us. We need these words. We need these words to invade our souls and bring clarity, to penetrate our hearts and bring comfort, to infiltrate our minds and bring wisdom. You've started a good work in us. We need you to continue that work this day. There are voids in us that can only be filled with the truth of your blessed character. There are crooked thoughts in us that can only be straightened by your blessed correction. Father, we came to feast. Now please, spread an Old Testament table. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Who's got the kingdom? It's a question asked all throughout this chapter. At different points in the chapter, you would have to supply a different answer. It seems like the kingdom changes hands often. Who's got the kingdom? We will find out. This is a glorious narrative. It's incredibly rich. There are five scenes. First scene, a frail and fading king. Verses 1 through 4. Second scene, king me. Verses 5 through 10. Third scene, Who's on the king's side? Verses 11 through 27. Fourth scene, God's king takes his mule and his throne. Verses 28 through 48. Fifth scene, the failed and fractured opposition. Verses 49 through 53. Scene one, a, fail and, a frail and fading king. Scene two, king me. Scene three, 
Who's on the king's side? Scene four, God's king takes his mule and his throne. Scene five, the failed and fractured opposition. There are five scenes and eight applications. Instead of saving the eight applications until the end, I'll drip them throughout the narrative. The narrative gives applicational spillover for our church. Now, we're going to take these scenes one at a time, so you, you perfectionists, it's going to be okay. That, that slide will be up again. Let's begin with scene one, a frail and fading king, verse one. Now, King David was old and advanced in years. Although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. This is a sad scene, a deathbed scene. Israel's famous King David is a flower quickly fading. Once a giant slayer, he made Goliath fall. Now he's fallen cold. Once a great fighter, now fighting to stay warm. He's a shadow of the man he once was. He rode victorious on battlefields. Now he's bedridden. We've known David for a long time. From a boy killing lions and bears to an old man unable to stop sh shivering. He's been reigning for 40 years. Who's got the kingdom? David's got it. That's how the question has been answered for the past 40 years. He's accomplished many heroic feats in battle. But now he's languishing in bed. If you stick your ear close enough to the page, you can hear him moaning in pain. He's old and cold. If he wasn't the king, he would be in a nursing home. But he's the king. So he's in the royal palace, in the king's chambers, in the king's bed. The king's deathbed. Warmth fled and coldness reigned over David's body. He must have some degenerative heart condition. He can't stay warm. He's got bad circulation. He's a picture of pity huddled under blankets. The Hebrew word covered indicated, indicates repeated attempts that failed. They put fleece pajamas on them, then double socks, triple socks, then earmuffs, then lit a fire in the hearth, but nothing seemed to work. It's like he's sleeping in an igloo and dying of hypothermia. This leads us to an early application, our first. Frail and fading, we are all headed there. Where David lay, frail and fading, we are all headed there. Unless we have a premature death. This opening verse is a sad reminder of our own frailty. Our hips will break. Our circulation will slow. We will physically decline. We will become decrepit. We will all have our deathbed. The frail and fading king points to a frail and fading reader. We will go downhill quickly. The Bible forces us to face our frailty. When your day comes and you're huddled under blankets, don't forget 
This is a result of sin. Sin is doing this to your body. Bible chronologers tell us David is only 70 years old. He's certainly less spry than many 70-year-olds I know. 70 is not old, but David ran hard. He's a 70-year-old man in a 90-year-old body. Verse 2. Therefore his servant said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in a service. Let her lie in your arms that my lord the king may be warm. David needs nursing care. His mind is still sound. No mention of going senile. His body is simply failing. Wise men and medical professionals of the day attempt to revive the aging monarch. They desire to help the quivering king. How can we raise his temperature? They want to bring in a home nurse. This nurse will lay with him and the body heat from her will be used to keep him warm. D.A. Carson notes that this was an ancient medical practice found in several ancient textbooks. Josephus, a Jewish historian, said this was a medical prescription for hypothermia, using a youth to restore vital warmth. The doctors want to hire a human heated blanket that will bring comfort to David and raise his body temp. Medical advice like this may seem crazy to you, but remember, just 200 years ago, we were bloodletting for a sore throat. Verse 3. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. Now, about this time in the story, <laughs> we start to pick up on something sounding a little suspect. Why do you need to hold a Miss Israel beauty pageant to find an at-home nurse? They didn't call hospice. They call a beauty queen. Some search for the most beautiful woman in the land was held and she was brought to the king. From, from where is your medical degree? Did you get that at Maybelline University? When I read half my commentaries and they say that there was nothing sexual about this, that just seemed crazy to me. Why did she have to be beautiful if it was not sexual? Why not go out and get a big boned woman? Seems like there would be more there to keep you warm. Now these advisors to the king were looking for more heat than just cuddling could provide. They wanted to see if they could sexually arouse the old man, revive his strength in this manner. See, in many cultures, to be impotent, sexually incapable, was grounds for a new king. It was a sign of, of inability to function as a king. Verse 4. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. I admit there is an air of ambiguity. I'm not sure what the medical professional's intentions were, but David does not know her. Know her, that's a euphemism for, well, you know. This whole scene seems wrong. 
a stunning, beautiful, ravishing young woman with this old man who is on an oxygen tank. His aged frame and her perfect frame, whatever was considered perfect in that culture, there is evidence in the next couple of chapters, we will get to it, that this woman became a wife or a concubine of David. David had 18 wives already. The point here is that David lost both his vitality and his virility. The weakness and vulnerability brought to light the urgent need for a successor. Whispers fill the palace. The question is now on the people's mind, who will succeed King David? Who is God's next king? Newspapers print their predictions. Odds were being placed on potential candidates. It seems King David failed to rightly transition the kingdom. Who is going to carry on the monarchy? Who's got the kingdom? First Kings is a succession narrative. And David failed to properly prepare for the succession that's the reason for all this drama we are about to see unfold. He lacked making godly preparation for the future. He displayed carelessness in not contemplating what may happen after his own death. He caused a messy succession. The big question, who will replace David? His carelessness leads to verse 5. Now Adoniah... Adonijah, the son of Haggith, Haggith, that's one of David's wives, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. In other words, king me. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Scene one, a frail and fading king. Scene two, king me. One of David's own sons attempts to seize the throne. We are watching a coup in progress. He gathers his posse, his entourage. He's got a mini fighting force, foot soldiers running alongside the horse-drawn chariot. This scene looks like Secret Service bodyguards walking alongside the presidential limousine. Chariots were the stretched limo of the ancient world. This is a, a presidential motorcade. He's posturing. He's posturing to launch a campaign. He's making a statement. Entering the streets as a king would in all his grandeur. He's surrounded by pomp and circumstance. He moves to rouse his backers. This is his public play to the throne. A political maneuver. You may remember Absalom, another of David's sons, did this exact same thing back in 2 Samuel. Then David was young and bold, not old and cold like he is now. So he was able to put that down. Adonijah was a grab life by the horns type of guy. Pedal to the metal, aggressive, risk taker. He sees an opening and he's going for it. He's pointing to himself, thumping his chest, King me! He's a throne-grabbing opportunist. When he says, I will be king, the Hebrew emphasis is, I am me, only this one will be king. This is a royal conspiracy. First in our passage, a dying king, 
now a self-appointed king. This is David's very own son involved in this conspiracy. It's his fourth-born son. Adonijah is about 35 years old. He's the oldest living son of King David. David's third oldest, Absalom, killed David's oldest son, Amnon. Then Absalom was put to death after a failed coup of his own. No one really knows what happened to the second son, Kiliab. Perhaps he died young. First son and third son are dead. Second son has disappeared, presumed dead. The oldest surviving son in most cultures would have the right to the throne. Of course he thought he would be king. He was next in line. Maybe his ambitions are not sinful. But church, you must remember, this is no ordinary kingdom. Israel did have a policy for royal succession. It was God chose the king. The people really merely recognized God's choice. And God had a very strong tendency to bypass the elder and exalt the younger. Adonijah, a political opportunist who doesn't care about his dad's coming death. He, he cares about the coming vacancy. He possesses a lust for power. Instead of being a sympathetic son, he's an opportunistic son. My father is clinging to, to his life, dying. How might this open a door for my advancement? You can tell the historian who records this event takes a negative view of Adonijah. Self-promoting behavior bleeds from this account. What makes you, like Adonijah, blind with ambition? If you're wondering what could drive a young man to dethrone his father and wreak havoc in the kingdom, then just see verse 6. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? Let's stop there. God attributes Adonijah's current behavior to his father's parenting. I have never seen anything like this in a biblical narrative. Stop the story to criticize David's parenting. The author wants us to return to when Adonijah was a child. David was too soft on his son, refusing to call out his sin. Not surprised there is this now, this behavior, because bad fathering led to that. Evidently, while parenting the young child and eventual teen, David refused to hold his son accountable. In the South, we call that spoiled rotten. The way Adonijah was indulged as a child explains why he is the way he is now. A child that is disciplined very little, will not lead to an adult of strong character. David never made Adonijah answer for his actions. Always supplied him with excuses. Well, he had a hard week at school. There's lots of transition in his life. He's battling with some things. 
David allowed his son to say no to him. David sternly said, stop. And little Elijah never, never stopped. David let this behavior go on. The, the teenage Adonijah was allowed to ignore David when David spoke to him. To give him the silent treatment. From this verse, it seems like a father shouldn't do everything a son wants. His father had never at any time displeased him. It appears a good father will cause the boy displeasure from time to time. David was a disaster as a father because he did not displease his son. He let the child do what the child wanted to do. David never had the reputation of disciplining his boys. And he failed as a father in that regard. The father who refuses to discipline his son sows seed in that boy's heart that reap a devastating harvest. David is an ineffective father. He did not instill wisdom in his son by holding his son accountable for his actions. He never reprimanded him. Adonijah was pampered by his father. Pampered children grow up to be monsters. Which leads us to our second application. If you are not willing to displease your child, you cannot please the Lord. If you are not willing to displease your child, you cannot please the Lord. His father had never at any time displeased him. A father cannot be worried if his son is displeased with him. Your job is not to please your son, but to make him a God-fearer. David failed to make his son a God-fearer. Some parents are terrified of their children. Terrified of saying no to them. They are struck with fear awaiting the child's reaction. So you make your day easier by making your child happy by withdrawing your authority. You idolize your children, that's why you don't discipline them. You refuse to allow conflict in your relationship with the child. That's why you give her everything she wants. You constantly appease. That little girl needs to learn she's not the one that needs to be appeased. Jehovah is. Little toddlers want to replace God. You have to continually remind them you are not the king. Little Anijah went around as a child saying, King me! And they thought it was cute. Selfishness is never cute. He's been a little me monster since he was a child and they never disciplined it out of him. Are you committed as a parent to persevere? A Christian father who will not restrain his son is not acting like his heavenly father. God faithfully discipline, disciplines those who are his children. You are treating your children like they are orphans when you don't discipline them. Like they have no parents. 
When you refuse to discipline, you say, shut up, God. I know better how to raise children than you. I father better than you. Let this text serve as a warning to fathers. Children must be disciplined. Daddy, it's easier to pick up an extra project at work and come home late than face the situation. Well, Pastor Kyle, I'm a, I'm a girl dad. <laughs> Pastor Kyle, I'm, I'm a girl dad. Meaning, you are a girl slave. And you give that little girl everything she wants. Spoiled children don't like the story of Adonijah. Because it fast forwards their life to show what they will be like as adults. The fallen nature doesn't like it when its sin is exposed. So expect that among your precious little children when you expose their sin. She's my little princess, Kyle. My little southern belle. I think it's cute when she's sassy. I give her what she wants. You need to give her what she needs. And she needs a daddy who loves God more than her. If you have a child that manipulates you into getting everything he or she wants, don't be surprised when they grow up like Adonijah to fight against God's kingdom. You, you middle schoolers here and high schoolers, you middle schoolers and high schoolers right now who are not Christians, but your parents are, Adonijah is a prime example that you can grow up in a Christian home and still go to hell. I know the pull. Parents, I know the pull. Sometimes the child has some disadvantage. And you try to make up for that by giving him or her everything she wants. I'm not trying to be funny here. I don't want you to laugh. I'm not trying to be funny. But the child may have a large head or a large nose or they may be very introverted or they may have a learning disability and you think, oh, I feel sorry for them so I will baby them their whole life. One theologian said, we need to return to the purpose-driven paddle. Children, thank God for a parent that disciplines you. They are saving you from becoming a me monster when you grow up. Notice verse 6b. After we find out about David's terrible parenting, we find out about Adonijah's handsome appearance. He was a handsome man. Now this was a, a typical trait required among kings. Adonijah was conscious of his good looks. Clothes mattered to him. Shoes mattered to him. His appearance contributed to his own self-importance. He thought highly of himself. He was a very conceited man. On the outside, he's everything one might want in a king. Verse 7. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. Adonijah continues his politicking. He wisely got the support of both the army and the priesthood. Joab, the five-star general, was loyal to David for many years. He was David's right-hand man, his nephew that led the army. Joab, a cutthroat, powerful, decisive general who could be very politically dangerous. Joab, the army, Abiathar, the priesthood. 
That was Israel's pastor. Both men served David for years. Some of David's oldest associates. Deep roots with David. Roots they ripped up and planted in Adonijah's garden. Adonijah sought wrong counsel. If you're looking for people to tell you what you want to hear, you can find them easily. If you're looking for people who will jump on your bandwagon when you rebel against God's kingdom, Satan will put a Joab and a Biathar in your path. You can always find someone who okays your sin. Prophets who tell you what you want to hear. And I want you to notice these people, Joab and Abiathar, rode with God's king for a long time. <laughs> I mean, through battles? They were David's ride or die? What happened? Why did they turn? Why after so long following God's king do they turn away? Well, our third application answers. Some people serve God's kingdom because it benefits them. However, it was never about God's kingdom. It was always about their safety and ease. Some people serve God's kingdom because it benefits them. However, it was never about God's kingdom. It was always about their safety and ease. So Joab and Abiathar faked it. They never truly loved God's king. How could these people pretend to be in God's kingdom for so long? Abiathar, a priest. Joab, a Christian soldier. How could they pull the wool over everyone's eyes? Friend, they were in God's kingdom as long as God's kingdom benefited them. When the moment presents itself of another kingdom providing better benefits, they're out. You know why? Because they were never truly in. Verse 8. But Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet and Shimei and Ray and David's mighty men were not, were not with Adonijah. Adonijah had a lot but he did not have unanimous support. There was an anti-Adonijah faction it seems like the kingdom has already divided among party lines. The traitors, verses 5 through 7. The faithful, verses 8 through 10. Here are the holdouts. Here are the true ones. There are still some who remain loyal to God's kingdom. They are Zadok, the priest. Nathan, the prophet. Benaiah, the soldier. Benaiah was head of David's personal bodyguard. David's mighty men. A group of 30 special ops soldiers. All of David's mighty men remained loyal to their commander-in-chief. Not only these, there were others, Shimei and Ray. Mystery surrounds who exactly they were. Beloved, be true to God's king like this crowd. Which leads us to our fourth application. There is always a remnant. <laughs> there is always a remnant that stays true to God's king. Even in times of turmoil, even when they are the minority, even when it's not looking well for those who stand with God's king, there is always a remnant that stays true to God's king. And there are always fakers who look like the remnant. 
Kyle, Kyle, how, how do we identify the fakers? <laughs> oh, they identify themselves in time. All you have to be concerned with is staying true to God's king. Verse 9. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside in Rogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal office, officials of Judah. What's happening? Adonijah seeks to garner support. He holds a fundraising banquet in a somewhat secluded and appropriate place for this clandestine gathering. They meet at the serpent's stone. Perhaps a little hint in the story that Adonijah is acting as the serpent did in the garden. Another person hell-bent on destroying God's promised line. Serpent in the garden, serpent at the rock, anything to stop God's unfolding drama of redemption. We see the work of the snake all throughout history trying to interrupt God's kingly line. Adonijah's serpentine character is put on display. He considered the time ripe to obtain formal backing. Verse 10. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah or the mighty men or Solomon his brother. These people did not get an invite. Maybe he got lost in the mail. They only hear of the party from pictures on Instagram. They got snubbed. Why aren't they invited to the coronation? Because they are loyal to God's kingdom. When you are faithful to God's king, you will miss out on some party invitations. This banquet is filled with many important leaders in the kingdom, all attending the coronation feast. Now, all the guests notice the absence of Solomon and Nathan and the others. This is a coup and everyone knows it. It's a private party with an elite guest list. Look at the list of donors. It, impressive. People don't want an old king. They don't want a fragile, forgets what he's saying leader. They just don't. Whenever succession is approaching, emotions tend to rise. Whenever a change of power is close, well, we know this, people tend to go nuts. What Adonijah has missed is this, you don't king yourself, God kings you. This is quite a bold move to send invitations to all the king's sons, but not include Solomon. Solomon is the tenth son of David. Why exclude Solomon? There is something peculiar about this move. Like Adonijah knows something we don't. Scene one, a frail and fading king. Scene two, king me. Scene three, who's on the king's side? Verse 11. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king and David our Lord does not know? Nathan and Bathsheba have a history. Nathan is God's prophet, the true prophet. Bathsheba is David's wife. When David killed Bathsheba's husband by sending him into an impossible military situation to come out alive, Nathan rebuked David. You are the man, parable. This is a very important moment in, in, in history. 
Humanly speaking, everything hinges on Nathan. If he doesn't step up, the kingdom will be lost. He goes to Bathsheba and says, have you heard through the grapevine what is happening? Adonijah is leading a, a coup saying he's the next king. This means death for you and Solomon. Upon ascending to the throne, he will kill any rivals and you and Solomon will be viewed as rivals. Rivals don't live. New kings liquidate all potential claimants to the throne. Here's what we need to do. I hatched a plan. Verse 12. Now therefore come. Let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Why then is Adonijah king? It seems Nathan reveals a detail withheld from 1 Kings readers until this point in the story. You as the reader have been missing a key link in the story and it's about to all make sense for you. God has already chosen the next king. It is Solomon. David told Bathsheba it would be Solomon. Apparently he made an oath to her already. And this is more than mere pillow talk. God told David in 2 Samuel 7 verse 12, you are going to have a son out of your Jerusalem children who will be king. That could not have been Adonijah. He had been born years before in Hebron. This promise was given to David in Jerusalem. In 1 Chronicles 22.9, God announced to David Solomon would be the next king. According to God, the king was already chosen. Solomon's omission from the guest list is a sure sign Adonijah knew this as well. Adonijah overlooked the promise of God through David. Adonijah, hear me church, he's, he isn't merely attempting to fill a power vacuum. He's trying to overthrow God's plan. He knew his younger half-brother was given the kingdom by God. David failed to properly communicate that to the people, but it, it was a done deal according to the Lord. Verse 14. Then while you are still speaking with the king, I will come in after you and confirm your words. Nathan says, we better alert King David to what is taking place. Inform him of the coup in progress. Bathsheba, you, you go tell him first, then I will come behind you and confirm. Literally, I will fill up your words. Whatever she left unsaid, he will say. They desire to rouse King David to action. The danger is Adonijah will succeed to the throne by David's inaction. They realize David has lost his edge. He's no longer instinctive. He missed the warning signs of the coup. He was too cold to see the coup. Verse 15. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, what do you desire? Now, that sounds pleasant in English. That's just a grunt in the Hebrew. What? Not, not much warmth between them. Bathsheba seems to have limited contact with David now. She observes court etiquette by bowing, verse 17. She said to him, my lord, 
You swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. In other words, you promised me in God's name, your son Solomon would sit on your throne. She's reminding David of his oath. David had taken no public action in this regard. David had been negligent in this matter of making it known to the public. She tells David, the whole nation is looking to you for leadership. They are looking to you for action. King, this is your hour. While David shivered and vegetated, she continued. 18. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon your servant, he has not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. In other words, you've lost touch with the events in your own kingdom, David. Your son Adonijah has executed his plan to perfection. We are in grave danger. God's plan for the kingdom is in great danger. As she discloses the traitors, David's mouth drops open when he heard Adonijah's name. His head shakes with disgust when he hears Joab's name. Tears fill his eyes when he hears Abiathar's name. She is trying to convince David of the immediate danger. The moment you are laid six feet under, we are as good as dead. We will have a bounty on our heads. At this point, we the readers of 1 King must answer the question, who's got the kingdom? It's Adonijah. David had it for 40 years, but it's Adonijah now. Verse 22. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in, and they told the king, here's Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground, and Nathan said, my lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me? And he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's son, sons, the, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him and saying, Long live King Adonijah. Now, the implication of this conversation is that it's not too late to do something about it. What was at stake if David did not take action? God's plan for the ages falls. No way you can be saved today if Adonijah is crowned king back then. You say, Kyle, is this just another king, another militia, another fighting in the Middle East? No. If God's promise that Solomon would reign failed to come to fruition, there is not a Jesus on a cross dying for the sins of men and women. God orchestrates the royal line. 
every detail, every marriage to lead to Jesus. The Lord always accomplished his purposes. He does not allow truth to fall and die in the streets. The fifth application. Use whatever influence you have to advance God's kingdom. Use whatever influence you have to advance God's kingdom. That's what Nathan did. Nathan was a loyalist, a faithfulist. He and Bathsheba were energized to work on behalf of the kingdom. They refused to take a fatalistic view of evil. They would not allow a seemingly irreversible situation to relieve them of responsibility. They discerned the evil and firmly resisted it. They played a crucial role. One man and one woman make a difference in preserving the kingdom. When you point out faux kings like Nathan and Bathsheba did, you fight for God's kingdom. Anytime you point out faux kings, rival kings, we are doing the work of Nathan and Bathsheba. That's not the real king. Don't look for salvation in that. Look for salvation in Christ. Scene one, a frail and fading king. Scene two, king me. Scene three, who's on the king's side? Scene four, God's king takes his mule and his throne. <laughs> Verse 28. Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity. As I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so, I will do, I will do this day. This day. David responded immediately to the crisis. He managed to throw off the mountain of blankets and act. He rises to the occasion. This is the oath remembered and reinforced. He ensures the dynastic future. He brings stability to the uproar. King David exercising royal power one more time. This is David leading out of weakness. God supplying David with what David needs to further God's redemptive plan. I empower you to accomplish my work. Verse 31. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my Lord King David live forever. Striking. Polite Bathsheba gives the royal formula, Long live the king. He would not. Riken said, according to ancient customs, when a ruler died, it was announced the king is dead, long live the king. Those words may sound like a contradiction. If the king is dead, how do you wish him a long life? But the point is that the kingdom will endure. Even though one king is dead, another king lives to take his place, the kingship will survive. Verse 32. King David said, call to me, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and bring him down to Guyon. A mule was a royal animal in this culture. 
highly valued among the Hebrews. David is putting Solomon on an Air Force One. Wait, only the king rides on Air Force One. Exactly. Guyon is a spring that gushed with water, a very public place, the main water source for Jerusalem. Solomon will be proclaimed as king in public. King David continues in verse 34. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him and you shall come and sit on my throne. For he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord the king, say so. Benaiah is amening. He's on the special ops team and he amens. He's a soldier committed to the kingdom of God. He got it. He understood. He comprehended what was happening. The soldiers under David's command would now recognize Solomon's kingship. They would protect him as king. David sings, crown him. Crown him with many crowns. A sovereignly appointed king. Benaiah, the soldier with strong theology, continues speaking. Verse 37. As the Lord has been with my Lord the king, even so now may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gion. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. A boisterous party results. This was a joyful clamor. The people were ecstatic. The nation celebrated God's king. They had all types of musical instruments, string instruments, and some type of bass too because it was more than windows shaking or house shaking. It was earth shaking, a swelling sound of joy. Now that's a party. God's people know how to party because we, more than anyone else, have reason to party. Our king is on his throne. They paraded Solomon through the streets on a mule. Crazy celebration ensues. Solomon is strangely passive throughout these four scenes. You know why? Because he comes to the throne not by merit or by performance. He comes by grace. And he more than anyone knows that. The repetition of the royal refrain, I love it, long live the king. They blow the trumpet to signify an official event. Direct dynastic succession occurred. Solomon is now co-regent with David. Solomon would no longer be prince or heir apparent, but co-king. Who's got the kingdom? It's changed hands again. Solomon does. The news of the coronation spread like wildfire. See it in verse 41. And Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. 
And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, what does this uproar in the city mean? Two coronations going on at the same time. Adonijah's and Solomon's. Two parties happening just a short distance from one another. A private party and a public party. Solomon's party is in full swing. It's loud and the other party hears it. They're just down the valley. They are eating their covert meal in the garden. Not the first time there's been a covert meal in the garden. Genesis keeps rearing its head. Why the roaring sound in the city? What's going on? <laughs> Sinful parties can never imitate God's parties. When God throws a feast, even the unsaved take notice. Verse 42. While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came. And Adonijah said, come in, for you are a worthy man, and bring these two words, good news. Jonathan. His dad is, is with Adonijah. He, Jonathan, he's a PK, a preacher's kid. And he reports the good news. What good news does he have? What gospel does he bring? Verse 43. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No. For our Lord King David has made Solomon king. And the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and they had him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed the king at Gion, and they have gone up from their rejoicing, so the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our lord King David, saying, May your God, make the name of Solomon more famous than yours and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. And the king said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. <laughs> this is David rejoicing in the fulfillment of the promises of God. God's gracious purposes for Israel came to pass. Talk about a party killer, a campaign killer. Put away the champagne because the campaign is over. Adonijah just finished stuffing his face and laughing and then suddenly his hopes and dreams die in an instant. Scene one, a frail and fading king. Scene two, king. Scene three, who's on the king's side? Scene four, God's king takes his mule and his throne. Scene five, the failed and fractured opposition. Adonijah isn't the only one hearing this report. Everyone at the party hears this. Then, verse 49, then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose and each went his own way. <laughs> the party is over. Shut it down. Everyone scurries and slinks home, quietly sneaking toward the exits quickly disperse, unwilling to challenge the will of the king. My, my, how quickly things can change in politics. No one wants to attach themselves to a failing candidate. His bid for power is halted. His ploy to grab the crown when nobody was watching has gone horribly wrong. Verse 50, And Adonijah feared Solomon, 
So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. He used to grab life by the horns. Now he grabs the horns of the altar. See, living for self in the beginning will have you crying for mercy in the end. Those horns of life don't satisfy. You need the horns of mercy. Adonijah fled to the tabernacle for asylum, seeking refuge in the sanctuary, thinking, I'm in a sacred place. He can't kill me here. This action was not prescribed by the law, but may have been something that developed, like the old-time cities of refuge. He believes this provides him some protection against retaliation. He wants clemency. Verse 51. Then it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon. For behold, he has laid hold of the horns on the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. I like this. I'm not leaving until King Solomon promises not to kill me. Verse 52. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of the hairs, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar, and he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. Adonijah took the posture of Bathsheba and David before King Solomon. We will find out later about Adonijah. His legs bowed, but his heart didn't. Solomon granted him amnesty. Pardon granted. You will live. Solomon will not inflict violence on him. A promise of good behavior for clemency. Notice the conditional pardon. Solomon said, if he will show himself worthy. Worthy is tantamount to supporting Solomon's reign. But if wickedness is found in him, wickedness is any political ambition in the future. He's under constant surveillance. Now church, our story has found a resting place. But it's not the end. We will pick up the story next week. But before we do, no need to pack up. We still got a little bit here. <laughs> I got three applications for you. Sixth application. What happened to this party will happen to everyone who sits at the table of a rival king. What happens to this party will happen to everyone who sits at the table of a rival king. Non-Christian, you visit with us here every Sunday. Welcome. Non-Christian, you're going to hear a party when the king returns and it's going to be too late to give your allegiance then. Sooner or later, this world's party will be over. Your late nights with a stranger, feasting and drinking apart from God's king will end. But unlike in our story, there will be no place for you to run and hide. No horns on no altar will save you when you reject God's king. Those like Adonijah who have tried to elevate themselves will be brought low. Psalm 49, 12, man in his pomp will not remain. Those who rebelled, who mutinied against God's king will answer to him. Dear non-Christian, repent of your rebellion against his reign. Your sin is open rebellion against his reign. 
Submit to his kingship with gladness. Submit to his kingship with sincerity. Submission marks the loyal subjects of this kingdom. Stop shamefully opposing God's king and bow before Christ. The seventh application. God allows evil to break out and ripen before he finally crushes it. You might read this passage and ask, why does God allow all this? You might watch the news and utter, why does God allow all this? God allows evil to break out and ripen before he finally crushes it. How does God respond to all of men's raging and plotting and conniving? Does he call an emergency session of the heavenly cabinet? Does he worry? Does he become agitated? No. Psalm 2, he sits in the heavens and laughs. He laughs at Adonijah. Man connives and, and raves in vain. Jehovah's plan will be accomplished. The kingdom of God has passed through precarious moments. But God overrules raging sinners in their vain plots. We've God's people have walked on the edge of disaster and God still brought his purposes to pass. The eighth application. Did you know that Solomon wasn't the only king to ride a beast into Jerusalem? Long live King David. Long live King Adonijah. Long live King Solomon. All those cries longed for a perfect king. He came. Jesus rode a little donkey into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday, they laid out branches and held, Long live King Jesus. Crown him with many crowns. David was not the first king to grow cold. In the tomb, King Jesus grew cold for three days. Then he grew warm. Jesus would no longer shiver in the cold chill of death. He conquered it. Let us dance in the streets. Long live our king. Who's got the kingdom? Let's answer the question we've started with. Five times in our text we find the phrase on the throne. Adonijah was asking who was on the throne. Nathan and Bathsheba were asking who was on the throne. David was asking who was on the throne. Solomon was wondering who was on the throne. The people clamored who was on the throne. Who's got the kingdom? It's a question asked all throughout this chapter. At different points in the chapter, you would be forced to supply a different answer. It seems like the kingdom changes hands often. But when we take a step back, we discover the kingdom actually never changed hands. It was always in God's hand. Who's got the kingdom? God does. Father, may we leave with more confidence than we had when we first entered. You are on your throne. And you've got the kingdom. In political turmoil, we ask the question, who is on the throne? You are. You've always been. Yahweh remains in control 
of redemption history. So we, so we sing and dance in the streets. Long live our King. Amen.